Thank you. Well, good morning. So happy you're with us this morning. Happy Easter to all of you. We miss seeing you in person, but we're looking forward to this and have been looking forward to this shared time together all across this region and throughout this city. On this Easter Sunday morning, I want to share with you my favorite story in the Bible. I love the Bible, and I love a lot of the stories in the Bible, but this is my favorite one. There is no story that I've read more, and there is no story that has shaped my understanding of what the church is called to be and who I am called to be as part of the church as much as this story. I absolutely love this story, and I love it for so many reasons. This is a story of heartbreak, and it's a story of confusion that gets transformed into a story of joy and a story of clarity. This is a story of a real-life journey. And it's a story of spirituality that makes a difference in real life. Like all good stories, this story includes real conflict and a good chase scene and plenty of discovery and mystery and food. This is a hopeful story. This is a Jesus story. And this is a story about Easter. I'm so honored to be able to tell you this story this morning, and I hope that it encourages you, and I hope it profoundly challenges you. I'm sure some of you are as familiar with the story as I am, and if you're thinking, oh, I've, I've heard this one before, I would simply say, remember, God's word is alive he has something to say to you through this story, his word today. You know how little kids like to hear the same story over and over and over and over and over and over again? Like, read it to me again. It's because repetition is stabilizing. It's because knowing what comes next builds a sense of security in our hearts. It teaches. It shapes the way we see reality, the way we understand the world. So this story may be familiar and you probably need to hear it again in this context, against the backdrop of this moment in our lives together today, to be reminded of this truth and to be encouraged to hope again. And I know that some of you have never heard this story before, and I'm especially excited for you because this is the best story, and I'm so happy to be able to share it with you. So I'll tell the story briefly, but then I want to point out and focus on a very important contextual detail that I've only recently noticed during this time that we've all been quarantined in our houses. I am finding in this detail a compelling invitation to live into this story more fully, and more faithfully. I'm seeing in this detail of this biblical story a critical parallel to our own time with our own cultural context, with our own stories. And ultimately this morning, I want to invite you to join me in this journey, the journey of this story that's called the road to Emmaus. The story of the road to Emmaus is recorded in the end of the gospel written by Luke. Luke traveled along with the apostle Paul. And at the end of Luke's gospel, at the end of Luke's account of the life and teachings of Jesus, he records this story. Now, let me back up. I want to encourage you to open the Bible to Luke chapter 24. 
Let me help you find it. The Bible is organized in two parts. There's the first part. Those are the Hebrew scriptures. We call them the Old Testament. Dozens of books written by dozens of authors, all before the birth of Jesus. The second part of the Bible we call the New Testament, 27 books written by half a dozen authors, all after the birth of Jesus. Now, the New Testament, that second part of Scripture, begins with four eyewitness accounts, the life and teachings of Jesus. The first is written by Matthew, the second by Mark, and the next is Luke's gospel, and then comes John. So find the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, turn to the very last page of the gospel written by Luke, or just find it uh, on your phone or something and follow along with me, beginning with uh, verse 13 of chapter 24. Here's a short summary of the Emmaus story. Once upon a time, there were two friends, and they were on a journey. They had a destination in mind. They had a place they wanted to go. But stronger than their desire to get somewhere was their desire to leave somewhere else, the place they had been. These travelers were leaving. Why were they leaving? Because their life had fallen apart. Because what they hoped would happen, what they believed would happen, what they told everybody they met was going to happen, it didn't happen. And they felt deeply disappointed. In fact, they were devastated. So they quit. They left. They quit their community. They abandoned their beliefs. And brokenhearted, they hit the road. But then these two travelers are joined on the road by a third traveler. This third traveler catches up to the two from behind and then slows down his pace to match theirs and then walks alongside them. And this third traveler engages the other two with a simple question. He asks, what are you guys talking about? And this simple question literally stops them in their tracks. They stop walking. They can't even look up because this simple question accesses this deep well of emotion that they are barely maintaining, this place of pain, this place of deep disappointment, just just welling up inside of them. They're barely holding it together. And so this simple question, hey, what are you guys talking about? It just stops them and they stand still. And their faces look to the ground. And then one of the travelers, I don't know if they're frustrated, if they're, if they're a little bit angry, if they're just like incredulous, they say, are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's happening? To which the third traveler responds with just another simple question, what's happening? And now it just pours out. Now they just let it all out. All their beliefs, all their disappointments, all their pain, all their unrealized hopes, everything they've been talking about, everything they've been feeling, all the disappointment and pain. And at one point they say, we had hoped. And it's just gut-wrenching because it's in the past tense. We had hoped. Like we were hoping, but we're not hoping anymore. That's why we're leaving. Because we're done with all of that. And I so appreciate this part of the story because it's just so human. 
It's such a human, a universal human experience. We had hoped. Like we were hoping that it would go like this. We were hoping it would all roll out like we had planned, but it hasn't happened that way, and we're just so brokenhearted about it. There's so many ways we hear these kinds of words spoken in our culture. We had hoped our marriage would be full of joy and laughter. We had hoped, but it's been a struggle. Or we had hoped we would conceive one day. We had hoped to be able to raise children. We hoped our home would be full of noise and, and, and activity, but it's, it's been real quiet. Or we hoped that these later years in our life would be a season of deep companionship, but instead it's been a, a time of profound loneliness. Yeah, we had hoped. This is what the travelers say. They say, we had hoped. But then this third traveler offers a perspective on their pain, a perspective on their disappointment, a perspective on their understanding that is so compelling to them that as the sun begins to set, they urge him to stay with them and have dinner with them. And they will not take no for an answer. They virtually grab his clothes and bring him in and like, you've got to have dinner with us because there's something absolutely compelling about this man. There's something absolutely compelling about what he's saying to them. And so they move from the road where they've been all day to the table. And then when they're seated together at the table, this third traveler takes bread, gives thanks, breaks it, and gives it to them. And suddenly they recognize this third traveler is Jesus. They have been walking all day long on the road with Jesus who was crucified and buried three days ago but has now risen from the grave and just handed them their dinner. They are sharing a meal with the resurrected Christ. He has been risen, raised from the grave. And then he disappears. And the two of them are looking at it and they're like, Dude, when he was talking, my heart was like coming out of my... Were you feeling it too? Were not our hearts burning within us when he walked with us and talked with us and opened the scriptures to us on the road? And then clarity replaces their confusion and joy overwhelms their pain. And they push back from the table and they get back on the road. But now they're going a different direction. They are returning. They're going back. They're going back to their place of disappointment. They're going back to the place of their pain. They're returning to their community. They're going back to their faith, but now they're going back with a message of hope. They are returning to the place of tragedy, but now they are carrying the truth. Convinced, they return to the crisis. They are no longer wanderers trying to find themselves. Now they are missionaries ready to give themselves to a broken world. And that's the insight that captivated me with such clarity a few days ago. It's this. They're going back to a broken world. They are running seven miles in the dark to re-engage the crisis that has devastated them 
until just a few minutes ago. What happened? Why are they going back? Because they just encountered the resurrected Jesus Christ. Because they just experienced the very first Easter morning. All the pain inside them was healed. All the sadness was restored. Can you imagine that? All your sadness restored. They just ate dinner with Jesus. They just ate the eighth meal with Jesus. One of the ways Luke's gospel is organized is around meal scenes. The seventh meal, the perfect meal from a Hebrew perspective is the Last Supper where Jesus gathers his disciples and they celebrate the Passover and he institutes this Last Supper, this Eucharistic meal, this communion time. That's the seventh meal. That's the perfect meal. They just ate the eighth meal with Jesus, which is to say the first meal of the new world. It's all changed now because of the resurrection. And they just partook in the meal with him. They could have just basked in the glory of the risen Christ for hours at the table. They could have just gone upstairs and enjoyed the most peaceful sleep of their entire lives. But instead, they run back to a city which is in crisis. They run back to the scene of a politically motivated assassination and a so-called failed rebellion and revolution. They run back to the followers of Jesus who are in very real danger of experiencing the same kind of violence that Jesus succumbed to just three days before. They go back to a place of poverty, to a place of power struggles, and to a place of all kinds of problems. They go back to a brokenness that is so deeply infected in the human condition that it's cellular. Here's the insight that feels just so powerfully relevant to me today, friends. Here's the contextual detail that I refer to. Here's the backdrop of this story, which has me studying it all over again and thinking again. This is exactly the narrative that needs to be guiding the church into the world today. It's this. The traveler's return to Jerusalem is not a happily ever after ending to this story. They are returning to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the joyful truth that sets people free. But they are not returning to a context or to a city that is celebrating that truth, right? They are carrying, they are not carrying a message The message they're carrying is not one which will be received by those in power warmly as they sip their mimosas while they enjoy Easter brunch, congratulating one another about how they finally got rid of that troublemaker, that Nazarene Jesus. No, the travelers are running back to Jerusalem because the resurrection is true. Not because everything's going to be rosy, not because everything's going to be happy, not because everything's going to be easy. They are not returning to a Mediterranean beach vacation, happy ending, end of the gospel, everything's wonderful. No, they are returning to tell the truth to a small, young, 
largely underground community of Jesus followers who are committed and who are convinced, but who are only just beginning the long journey of trying to figure out how to live in a sick, dying, violent world in light of a whole new reality. What is that new reality? It's the reality of the resurrection. So I'm compelled. I mean, all over again, I'm compelled by the traveler's response to experiencing Jesus on the road and at the table. I am deeply challenged by their decision to re-engage not just their personal pain. We've talked a lot about that in the past. I am challenged by their decision, friends, to engage the overwhelming brokenness of the whole world with this message. The travelers seem to me to be like firemen who are running into the fire. They're not running toward this cultural crisis because it's going to be easy to be a Christian there in the midst of the crisis, because it's not going to be easy to be a Christian there. They're not running into this cultural crisis because it's going to be socially advantageous to be a Christian in first century Jerusalem, because it's not. They're not running there because it's going to be fun, because it's not, and they're not running there because it's going to be easy or safe, because it most definitely is not going to be. They are running back into this broken place. They are running into this painful place for this reason, They are carrying the real message of hope for a broken world. That's why they're going. They're carrying the real message of hope for a broken world. They have actually encountered Jesus and he is alive. They are carrying a hope that is more powerful than disease, friends. That's how That's the hope they're carrying. They're carrying a hope that is more stabilizing than economic security. Okay, that's the quality of the hope they're carrying. They're carrying a hope that is stronger than fear. And on this very first Easter Sunday, as the news of the resurrection of Jesus is just a few hours old, get this, Christians are already addressing tragedy with truth. They are already applying their conviction to the crisis. They're not running away from it. And in so doing, they are engaging a battle, and it is a very real battle. Realize this. Realize that almost every single one of these Christians will be martyred for this message. The context, the climate in which these first messengers proclaimed, he is risen, is a context of crisis. But they run to it. They don't avoid it because they have the one thing that this broken world desperately needs. What do they have? They have hope. They have a real hope. And it is a hope that cannot get sick. And it is a hope that has overcome death. And it is a hope that will never be bankrupt. And it is a hope that cannot be canceled. Okay, it is a real hope. It is an everlasting hope. It is a persevering hope, and they carry the message of this hope, and it is what the world needs. And so they re-engage the world, even a world in crisis. And so on this Easter morning, 2020, I want to invite you to the crisis. You are invited to the crisis. 
you're invited to receive the hope of the resurrection. Let Christ's victory over sin and death fill you with new life. And then carry that message of hope right into the crisis. Amen? May God give us the courage, the strength, the clarity, the urgency, and the compassion that we need to share the news of the hope of the resurrection with our world today in the name of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.